I have a meditation for your hearts this afternoon in keeping with our purpose to observe the ordinance of the bread and cup. And it is my hope that as you meditate upon these things and give yourself wholly to the experience of the ministry of this message, as you consider what I say, that the Lord will give the understanding in all things, and that with this understanding, faith will arise in your hearts. For the scriptures teach us that faith comes by hearing, that is, by hearing the word of God. Our communion meditation can be entitled, Remembering That God Remembers. We usually celebrate the communion of the bread and cup by reading through Paul's words addressed to the Corinthian church as found in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 34. And within those 12 verses, we hear this remark from the Apostle Paul, which is very interesting. Beginning with the 23rd verse, Paul says, I have received of the Lord, and I deliver this unto you. The ordinance presents to us Something, dear brothers and sisters, beyond just the symbols of bread and the symbols of the fruit of the vine. The ordinance is a passing along of something spiritual, something very important to the Christian life. Jesus was the prime mover in this chain of cause and effect events, this experience of the passing on from one to the next of divine truth. And so this afternoon, I believe the Holy Spirit wants to keep up this tradition, if you will, in the celebration of the communion of the bread and cup by passing on to each of your hearts a spiritual understanding of one particular aspect of this ordinance. Remember that it was Jesus himself who initiated this cause and effect chain of events whereby divine truth is passed on from generation to generation and from heart to heart. So as Paul received from the Lord and delivered to the Corinthians, we can receive from his words and deliver to you. And within that message that he delivered to the Corinthians, He tells us that Jesus instituted this celebration in remembrance of him. Let's hear the language as given to us in the 24th verse of 1 Corinthians 11. Paul says, And when Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. And Jesus says the same thing as it relates to the cup within which was the fruit of the vine. He says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. And so the initiation of this idea of remembering was begun by the prime mover, 
the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the cause of this value, of this principle, of this spiritual tradition. And we want to reflect, brothers and sisters, specifically upon this exercise of remembrance. We're going to do so by first speaking about God's divine attributes. The acts of God, the things that we can understand about Him, the theologians tell us, are divided into two kinds, internal and external. Internal acts of God, internal aspects of His nature, and external acts of God. These ideas have Latin designations in the theological treatise. The internal acts of God are known as the opera ad intra, and the external acts of God are known as the opera ad extra. We're going to reflect primarily on the implications of God's divine attributes as they are displayed to His people through His redemptive acts. So they are the acts that are terminus ad extra. They are the acts that are displayed to us through creation initially and all of the providential dealings of Almighty God on behalf of the elect. Now, I want to say something a little more fully about the attributes of God as we build a case for reflecting on God's attributes when we think about what it is to pass along the message of remembering, particularly when we celebrate the communion of the bread and cup. So, take, for example the correction that Jesus gave to the rich young ruler. You will find it in Matthew chapter 19 and verse 17. The rich young ruler had addressed Jesus with a phrase that, though appropriate, Jesus knew was stated somewhat casually. He said, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus catches that adjectival modifier that was directed toward him, though certainly a moral man, nonetheless not in the eyes of the rich young ruler as being God himself at this moment. And Jesus is aware of that. And so he says to the rich young ruler whom he loved, he says, why do you call me good? Good is not an appropriate term for anyone except for God. Jesus said there is none good but one, that is God. He goes on to say that if you would inherit eternal life, you should keep the commandments. We know that ultimately Jesus gives him this recommendation in order for the man to feel the impossibility of keeping the commandments so that he would come to Jesus and receive of his grace for salvation. But certainly Jesus is not indifferent to goodness in his creation, indeed moral goodness in humanity. And yet, Jesus does make it very clear that we must keep our category distinctions very 
solid in our thought patterns and recognize that while we are to aspire onto the good, only God himself fits the definition of what good is. I want to expand upon that notion by reading some language from a certain author by the name of Grant Sutherland. He says the following, The goodness of God can be conceived in terms of God in himself, ad intra, and God's work in creation, ad extra. A thing is good to the extent that it is all that it can and should be, namely, perfect. Our author goes on to say, God alone is all that he can and should be. Now, I will add a remark about the idea of should be, and I will assure you that our author means, and so do I mean, that it's uniquely applied to God as it relates to his nature. That is to say that God's nature does not change. And so the should is not like a moral obligation that is above God. It is that the definition and the reality of the great I am is forever settled. And therefore, this is exactly what he reveals himself to be. There's a sense in which we can say this is what he should be, not because of moral obligation, but because of the perfection of his being. Our author continues, thus, since God is wholly perfect, lacking nothing, he is the supreme and absolute good. Moreover, since he is already himself fully perfect according to his nature, there is no end, no good toward which he strives. We could say that in the being of God, there is no need for Philippians 3 and verse 14. There Paul says, I press toward the mark for the prize of a high calling. I want you to understand, my dear brothers and sisters, that as it relates to our wonderful God, there is no need for him to press for something better. He is absolutely perfect already. He is not striving for something to add to his perfections. To refer to God's goodness is simply to refer to God himself. That is to say... God's essence is identical with his goodness. And goodness is an essential and necessary attribute of the divine nature. Since God is infinite, his goodness is as immeasurable as his being and nature. Think of that. His goodness is beyond your comprehension. His goodness is as profound and as extensive and as beyond your ability to see and to hear and even enter into your heart what his goodness is. Moreover, as self-sufficient, God does not derive his goodness from anything else. Thus, he rests in himself as good. Now, what we have just done as it relates to the attribute of good or goodness, that which Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 19 to the rich young ruler, 
we could do with all of the attributes of Almighty God, and we could speak with language by which we underscore how it is the case that every positive thing you can say about God, however extensively you delineate his attributes and speak about his person and his nature, at every point you would be speaking about absolute perfection that is absolutely stable and consistent and changes not. And therefore, brothers and sisters, when Jesus gives the command... In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, and he says, Be ye therefore teleos, be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. I would suggest to you that that is not primarily or even indeed being said with the idea that you will be able to arrive at God's perfections. It is not stating, be ye therefore perfect to the same extent of absolute perfection as is the perfection of your Father in heaven. I would suggest to you that that is a misunderstanding of the text. One could state that God's utter perfections manifest to us that our transformation is always in vogue. It is always relevant to who we are. Our work, as it were, is always in front of us, and to some extent, it will that, it'll be that way in eternity. And so, yes, we can grow and mature, and we can develop in our being, more and more toward the perfections of Almighty God, but we will never reach divine absolute perfection. Rather, what Jesus is saying, and here we begin to open up to your hearts one of the main principles that underlie this message. What Jesus is giving us is an encouragement to follow God's example. What he is saying is something like this. Your Father in heaven is absolutely perfect, not only in the sense that he does within his being have absolute moral perfection of character, but that is entirely the way that he manifests himself in all situations, in all conditions, for all time. Your Father is always perfect. Perfect. He is the epitome, the very definition of perfection, and he does what you are called to do with absolute consistency. And therefore, he is saying, your father is already ahead of you in terms of living, as it were, towards you in an absolutely perfect way. He does nothing against you that is unjust or unkind or unfair. There is not a thought that he has that could be scrutinized and found to be lacking in any measure. Your father is perfect. There is none that is perfect, as Jesus said about men and goodness. There is none that is good, but your father is perfect. Therefore, he is saying, look at your father, be mentored and trained by his example. 
be taken by the beauty of his person and let his perfect existence, we could say behavior in the sense of how he relates to his people, however you wish to express his actions. Be ye therefore perfect, strive to be as good as your father in heaven in your relationship with him and in your relationship with others. You see, my dear brothers and sisters, what is being said in Matthew 5, 48 is similar to what Jesus argues elsewhere, wherein he argues that wherever moral excellence is commanded by God as behavior that his people are to live, this moral excellence exists in himself in absolute perfection. This is a very edifying thing to contemplate. Jesus makes this case in Matthew 7 and verse 11. You remember these words, but may the Holy Spirit help their implications to reach more deeply into your spirit. There in verse 11, Jesus says, If you then, if my creation, even my regenerate creation, being evil, we could modify that as saying, At some point, through the grace of God, various humans within his creation may not be of the nature of the evil one. But what he is saying is that you are limited. You are not perfect. You are incomplete. That's what he's saying. And maybe it never is otherwise than this, that there is some evil yet operating in us because we are not yet matured onto the image of the Lord Jesus Christ and the measure of the stature of his fullness. But here, listen to the language. If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? Do you see what Jesus is setting up here for us? Certainly it is a moral excellence that God asks of his children to aspire onto. What is the moral excellence? To know how to be good toward others, to know how to give good gifts and to be gracious and to give blessings to others. And what Jesus is saying as it relates to God, and we can put this into the category of his attributes, For if we are able to, in some measure, give good things to others, that is a characteristic of our life. That's a quality of our being. That's an attribute of our soul. And Jesus is saying that if any of you rise to some level of ability to do good, understand that your father is so much further along than you are. He operates in perfect goodness. That understanding alone would have solved many a riddle that has troubled the hearts of God's dear saints over the centuries. It may be the case that God's saints will still struggle with things in their journey. You may, I may, but we will do it in spite of the reality of what I've just said. For when Job, for example, 
was complaining against God and speaking about what appeared to him to be the injustice of God's behavior while he was simultaneously listing all the good qualities of his behavior to his neighbors. He should have thought to himself, if I can muster goodness toward others, God is so much better than me. I therefore must be misunderstanding what my experience is because I cannot attribute to God a goodness that is less than what I care about and what I feel about. And so as this relates to the communion command to remember, that is a command, is it not? Does not Jesus say, do this in remembrance of me? And we are to pass that on to the next person and to the next generation. That which we have received of the Lord, we are to deliver to others and we are to deliver pointedly. You are to remember the Lord Jesus and what he did on that night when you partake of the communion of the bread and cup. Is that not right? But in that I have built up an argument That as it relates to God, when we reflect on his attributes, we can clearly state that anything that we can do, he does far better than we. And therefore, as it relates to the communion command to remember, we could recast the Sermon on the Mount sayings in the following way. Strive. To remember perfectly, for your Father in heaven remembers perfectly. Is that not an interesting reflection? Are rays of divine light beginning to shine into your soul? Are you beginning to see with me that when God gives a command to his people, we can then reflect on what that implies about his own actions toward us? And so if we are to be perfect... As Matthew 5:48 states, if we are to be perfect because our Father in heaven is an encouragement to us, he is a perfect being. He models it. He is the very definition of it, not just again in some static, non-active, non-emotional, distant, deistic position, but he is perfect in his relationship with us. Then We could be encouraged to remember and we could be told to remember in the context of the reality that your father in heaven is the very example of he who remembers perfectly. We could recast Matthew 7 and verse 11 in the following way. If ye then, church of the upper room Christian assembly, preparing to observe the communion of the bread and cup within which we are exhorted to do this in remembrance of Jesus and by extension what this ordinance refers to and implies and stands for. If ye then, being limited, being evil, not perfect, having flaws in your life, if ye then, being evil, think of yourselves as being able to nonetheless gather together and remember God's covenant as you partake of the communion of the bread and cup, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven remember his own covenant and all that that means in terms of the perfections of what he does as an example of what he is asking us to do, wherein he is 
calling upon us to remember this covenant and to remember it relationally and to remember it profitably and to remember it expectantly and to remember it as a form of a means of grace. How much more shall your father set the example and remember his own covenant when we partake of the communion of the bread and cup? This works out to the following beautiful exercise, which should be a great encouragement to our faith. When we celebrate the communion of the bread and cup, we do this as Jesus said, ace, tain, amen, animanasin, in remembrance of him. And among the things we remember is we remember that Jesus remembers his own covenant perfectly. Why is this important? Because we're on a journey. Because we're on a pilgrimage. Because we are on the other side of the veil. My dear brothers and sisters, think about what remembering is. It's actually quite a profound concept that God has ordained. Remembering is the act of retrieving that which is not historically present in its details but is nonetheless dynamically relevant to the present situation. When we remember Jesus' death, when we partake of the communion of the bread and cup, we are not offering up a fresh sacrifice. Those details have already occurred historically. That's why we call it remembering. If we were offering up his body sacrificially afresh in the celebration of the Mass, as the Catholics teach, then you don't have to remember his death. It's being displayed right in the moment. Just look on it and behold it happening. But you remember because you're supposed to retrieve an historical event that had details to it that are not presently here. Hence, it only comes to you and is made dynamic to the extent that you remember it. But Jesus is encouraging you by stating that you might have some present issues presently in your life, some spiritual challenge, some aspect of your soul that needs healing, some situation in your family that needs to be ministered to by God. And he is recommending that you remember what he did when he, on that night, he confirmed the covenant. He ratified it. Remember, because this is relevant to your present situation. If we use a natural example, I could relay the following to you. That whenever Sam Houston and his men were finally able to overcome the Mexican forces led by Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana at the Battle of San Jacinto. In that battle, they had a phrase that they repeated that gave them a dynamic resilience. And it was, remember the Alamo! Remember the Alamo! And so though outnumbered, and though recently having suffered an incredible defeat at the hands of this same Mexican general, they rose to the occasion, and in 19 minutes, they wiped out the Mexican forces, and that was the end of that contest. 
That battle took place in April of 1836. And when they're saying, remember the Alamo, it's obvious that those events are not occurring right there in front of them. In other words, Davy Crockett and William Travis and James Bowie, while they were at the Alamo mission, they were not very likely encouraging each other by saying, remember the Alamo, remember the Alamo. I understand that there's a way in which you could reflect on that if they were thinking about what this would mean to posterity and so on. But what I'm wanting to stress is a very simple observation, and that is the act of remembering this dynamic form of remembering is necessary, spiritually speaking now, for us to walk in the faith of what God has said, rather than walking in the fear of what you face. Remember, no, not the Alamo, but remember Calvary. Remember Jesus' death. Remember his covenant. Remembering is necessary because the experiences of life can tend to cloud his way. You can tend to get caught in the vortex, in the whirly-burly of life and feel defeated and feel quite overcome by the forces of the enemy and the wickedness of the world. And so remembering, since Jesus isn't going to show up for you on your doorstep to give you a boost, he has instituted this beautiful act of faith whereby instead of fearing what you face, you remember the acts and word of God. Dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that God is not going to save us from the struggle of this life. Not entirely. Not right now. Yes, the scriptures teach that we groan within ourselves and we wait for the adoption, that is the redemption of our bodies. That is to say, there is coming a time when our bodies will be redeemed out of this present struggle. But until that time comes, the scriptures say we will groan within ourselves. And the antidote to many of the groaning experiences that you will have will be from remembering God's covenant and bringing that dynamic encouragement to your hearts as opposed to staring at the negative circumstances that are right in front of your face. Yes, it is the case as Hebrews 7 and verse 25 says, Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. And so you might think that that would translate into you would not face difficulties and challenges and an array of circumstances that sometimes are so perplexing they defy your ability to sort it out. But you would be wrong about that. For the one who is interceding and ever lives to intercede is the same one who began that intercessory ministry in the upper room in John chapter 17 and said, there's one thing I will not be praying for you. I will not pray that you be taken out of this world. I'm not praying for you to be taken out of the struggle. No, you must, through much tribulation, enter into your final rest. You must labor to enter into that rest. You must endure to the end. You must fight the good fight of faith. 
Therefore, when you're in the midst of the fog of war and you cannot see anything in front of you that is encouraging, then you can exercise that spiritual discipline of remembering God's covenant And you can bring with that the understanding that God himself remembers his covenant much better than you do. The scriptures tell us that we are in an experience that is tense, that is stretching, that is perplexing, that apart from a spiritual understanding could even seem contradictory. For example, in 1 John and chapter 3 and verse 2, a particular theological thought that is developed in the literature is quite substantiated by this verse where John says, Beloved, there is a now as well as a not yet to your existence. He says, Beloved, now we are the sons of God, but it doth not yet appear what we shall be. And so, brothers and sisters, what I'm saying to you is that your Christian experience is going to have the feature of a certain assurance within your being about the promises and about the statements of God as they relate to you as being his elect, his beloved, they who should be hearing and experiencing God's marvelous acts and answers to prayer. But there will also be this aspect of our lives where there is a not yet to the appearance of things that we're believing for, things that we're hoping for, things that the Word has assured us should be our experience and will come to pass. And I'm saying to you, remembering is what you need to do while standing between these two points in order to keep your hopes alive. When you're in between the point of the now, all the promises, all the beautiful pictures that the Word of God gives to us as it describes our life and our victory and our success and our fruit bearing and every aspect of what Almighty God has done for us through Jesus Christ that you long to see. While you stand between the now and the not yet, leaving aside why the not yet is there, why it isn't fully manifested, which we're not teaching on at the moment, But you will definitely find yourself between those two points. And how will you live and survive and keep your hopes up? You will do so by remembering. Remembering when there's nothing in front of you, circumstantially, to support your hopes. Remember His covenant. Remember His faithfulness. Remember who God is. And all the while you do this, remember that the one who is challenging your heart to bring forth this spiritual muscle and exercise. Dear brothers and sisters, if you can remember, if God calls upon you to remember, do you understand this beautiful thing about your father yet? That he isn't asking you to do something that he is not already doing in absolute perfection. He remembers his own covenant in just the way he is calling upon you to remember his covenant. But he does it perfectly. He does it with perfect love. 
with perfect understanding about the relationship, with perfect balance and perfect justice and perfect every aspect of it, perfect application of the whole idea. And I believe that oftentimes we fail in the experience of God's faithfulness because it isn't that He has forgotten us, but we have forgotten to remember that He remembers His own covenant. We think of Him as having forgotten His promises or being somewhat indifferent to the things that He has said. And we are in so thinking, we are charging God with an attribute of evil that is untrue and not in keeping with who His personality is. Augustine made this beautiful remark in his confessions. He said to God, give what you command and command what you will. That means when God says, do this in remembrance of me, God is the one who will give you the ability to remember. Why and how does he do this? Because he is perfect in doing this. Now I want to say a few things about what a covenant is before we come to the application portion of this message. I want to remind you about what a covenant is, and I will relay to you some key statements from an array of theologians that have written on this topic and are considered to be standard authorities. This theologian named Rusus Rushtuni says about the idea of covenants, the doctrine of the covenant is basic to Scripture. In fact, the Bible is a covenant book. It is the text of God's treaty with man. There's something of a coming to peace on terms that God offers very graciously to man. And here is the agreement of friendship and relationship. Rush Dooney says, because it is a covenant document, it is therefore a legally binding document. Another authority on covenant theology, Meredith Klein, says the following. Of the biblical words usually rendered covenant, the primary one in the Old Testament is the Hebrew berith, for which the Greek diatheke, was the translation choice of the New Testament writers. Berith making, covenant making, is accomplished through a solemn process of ratification. Allow me to pause. What did Jesus say as it relates to this ordinance? He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Remember this covenant. So take in these descriptions of what the covenant is that we are to remember. It is accomplished through a solemn process of ratification. I would certainly say Jesus' experience at Calvary was a solemn process. Characteristically, this transaction centers in the swearing of an oath with its sanctioning curse. Clearly, a berith is a legal kind of arrangement a formal disposition of a binding nature. At the heart of a berith is an act of commitment. 
And the customary oath form of this commitment reveals the religious nature of the transaction. The berith arrangement is no mere secular contract, but rather belongs to the sacred sphere of divine witness and enforcement. Dear brothers and sisters, if these are the truths that speak to what the covenant is that you should be understanding and remembering, then in keeping with the meditation of this study, which is entitled, Remembering That He Remembers His Covenant, then you should be drawing into your soul the appreciation that God remembers all these things. He remembers that this is a binding arrangement. It's an act of commitment. It was executed through a process of solemn ratification. It is meaningful. And indeed, God speaks of this sort of thing. Take, for example, among the many passages, that which is written in the book of Hebrews in chapter 6, verse 17, wherein God, willing, wanting, more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel. The Greek is boule. It means his purpose, his intention, his plan. Do you not hear with me that God is ahead of us? That is to say that God is there beyond us wanting to confirm to us the certainty of his word. It isn't we who are wishing that God would somehow muster up an interest in his own word sufficient to really engage our spirits and to summon faith and interest and dedication. He's ahead of us wanting us to see how much of a covenant-keeping, perfect God He is. And so He confirms it with an oath. He establishes or He dispenses His purpose toward us in the form of a covenant so that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. If God had simply said to us, this is the way it's going to be, Dear brothers and sisters, it's impossible for God to lie. He is perfect in goodness. If He is telling you, don't lie, He is saying, follow my example. I am perfect in that regard. I don't lie in the least shade. Be like me, is what He's saying. And so what God is saying is, if I had just told you what my plans are for your life, and how things will unfold over time, and what the nature of our relationship would be, it would be true. But I wanted you to know how absolutely faithful I am, so I added an oath. I brought this to you in the form of a covenant, so that you would feel how serious I am about all of this. Another edifying author on covenant Concepts is Owen Palmer Robertson, and he says a covenant is a bond in blood, sovereignly administered. When God enters into a covenant relationship with men, he sovereignly institutes a life and death bond. In its most essential aspect, a covenant is that which binds people together. Do you believe that this afternoon? 
Do you know that God remembers His own covenant? It is an arrangement that binds people together. Nothing lies closer to the heart of the biblical concept of the covenant than the imagery of an unbreakable bond. Does that come to your mind and to your spirit when you partake of the communion of the bread and cup? Is it refreshed to your soul as you remember Jesus and the covenant that He established that your relationship with God is in the form of an unbreakable bond? Perhaps there is a waning of the power of this heavenly ointment in our souls because it's not purely mixed any longer in society and in human relationships. The scriptures tell us that when men walk away from God and when they cease to pattern themselves after God's own character, they will develop a reprobate mind. They will develop a clouded way of looking at life. Men will become covenant breakers. The ability to break covenants, to go back on our word, to be truce breakers, to not keep our oaths, our ability to say one thing and do another will be so rampant, so normalized, so egregiously and outrageously a part of the fabric of all of human experience that we will tend to reflect that back on God. And at the least experience of disappointment, we'll charge God with being a covenant breaker, with not being an oath keeper. Thomas Brooks, a Puritan, had the following to say about covenants. He said, as soon as man was made, God entered into covenant with him. The language of Genesis 2.17 bears this out. In the day thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Actually, Hosea in chapter 6 and verse 7 can be translated as, but they like Adam have transgressed the covenant. The Hebrew is Adam, which could be humanity, but it could also be a personal name. And therefore, Thomas Brooks, along with many other theologians, understands that there is a covenant relationship that is established right in the garden. Brooks goes on to say, after this, he made a covenant with the world through Noah. After this, he made a covenant with Abraham. After this, he made a covenant with the Jews at Mount Sinai. We could enlarge the list, but Brooks finishes by saying, thus you see that God has commonly dealt with man in the way of a covenant. Listen to some of the language that the scriptures uses as it relates to these various covenants. I will say parenthetically, the purpose of this teaching is not to enlarge upon the topic of covenants or to digress into a treatment of covenant theology or anything along those lines. We've had those discussions in other teachings. I am simply wanting to bring the covenant concept afresh to your minds So you can see how prominently it features in the scriptures and you can be refreshed as we've already done in reading the various definitions of what a covenant is. You can be refreshed by knowing how serious of a concept it is. So, for example, in Genesis 6, as it relates to Noah and in verse 18, we read of God speaking to Noah and saying, 
but with thee I will establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. Now, my dear brothers and sisters, right there, you are already seeing the idea that we're talking about. Because Genesis 6 and verse 18 is prior to the flood. And what God is saying is, I am in a covenant relationship with humanity. And the condition of humanity presently is such that I would be just to destroy every last creature. But I am remembering my covenant. It wasn't Noah that knocked on heaven's door and initiated this conversation and said, before you wipe everybody out, out, don't forget you're in a covenant relationship with humanity. God promises Noah, I will establish my covenant with you. And then on the other side of the flood, he confirms this afresh. And think of the ideas that are brought to our attention in this passage of scripture, Genesis 9, beginning with verse 11. God says, I will establish my covenant with you. Do you hear the language again? That the critical thing is the covenant. The covenant is the continuum. The covenant is the static element that must be present around which all of God's actions are ordered and arranged. I will establish my covenant with you. I will keep this covenant promise and relationship going forward. Neither shall all flesh be cut off anymore by the waters of a flood. Here's my new arrangement with humanity. Here's my new covenant detail with the human race. I will not wipe out large portions of the human race through a global flood. I won't do it anymore. On to verse 12. And God said, look at, look at this. This is the token of the covenant, which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations. I do set a visual symbol in the cloud. Do we not have today a token of the covenant in the bread? and in the fruit of the vine? Do you see that God was already working with these ideas when he made this covenant with Noah? Indeed, if we go back to the garden, we can talk about the symbolism of the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and we can understand those things in covenantal terms as we should. But I'm using the very accessible language of Genesis 9 and the Noahic covenant to manifest something to you, as is said in verse 13, God said, I'm going to put my bow, my visual symbol in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and you and the earth. Do you understand what he's saying? So far, you can be thinking about this in this way, when you see the bow after a rainstorm or whatever conditions you see the rainbow in the sky, then God wants you to remember his faithfulness, that he's not going to destroy the world with a flood. He isn't going to wipe out the majority of humanity at any point in redemptive history until the very end of the age when we know what he has prophesied in terms of how he will judge the earth at his appearing and his coming. This is telling us 
something about what we can count on as it relates to God's disposition to the human race, generally speaking, that He will send rain and fruitful seasons. And this is how God will relate to us. This is who He has committed Himself to be to us. Do you understand that? And you are encouraged to look on that bow and remind yourself of this God and let your hopes be enlivened. What a beautiful thing God has done. But when we continue to read after the 14th verse, which speaks of him putting this bow in the cloud. Hallelujah. A bow in the cloud. Verse 15 says, And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh, and the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh, and the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. If it sounds to you as if God is saying, in the same way that I encourage you to look at the bow in the clouds, even if you are tempted to be discouraged or to be pessimistic in an overwrought sense of what the future holds for yourself and for humanity, if you're reading this as if God is not only encouraging you to do that, but saying of himself, I too will look at the bow and I will remember my commitments. Then as a matter of fact, you're reading it well, because this speaks of God's attribute ad extra. Yes, you can observe the fact that God doesn't have to remember in the sense that he is not in control of his feelings, in the sense that he forgets or is absent-minded. You could look at life that way, but what you're doing is you're emphasizing his attributes ad intra as they relate to the consistency of his own being. What God wants you to understand is that as it relates to his relationship with you, he wants you to know, even if you can't fathom how all this works, even if you know that at the end of the day that he is still completely in charge, as it were, of his own spirit, and he doesn't fluctuate up and down with fits of anger, yet nonetheless, you miss something, dear brothers and sisters, absolutely vital to your soul's stability when you fail to see that God is wanting to reveal his perfections to you ad extra, and he does it in the context of the relational dynamic between he and us, in which he says, if you sometimes feel disappointed, so do I. But I remember my covenant, and I want you to follow my perfect example and be encouraged to remember the covenant. Let's, as it were, God is saying, let's remember this covenant together. And indeed he is saying, when I call upon you, in these covenant conflicts that occur in your life through disobedience, etc. When I call upon you to remember this covenant, if you're ever going to find your way out of this, if you're ever going to make your way back to God and be recovered within the context of covenant promises and the covenant relationship, if you're ever going to summon the strength to relate to me in that fashion, you will summon all the more strength if you realize that I hold myself as 
necessarily being the example to you. If you can remember the covenant, how much more does your Father in heaven remember the covenant as well? And so we have language throughout the Bible. Genesis 17, as it relates to the Abrahamic covenant, God says in verse 2, and I will make my covenant between me and thee. He calls it my covenant. As it relates to the Mosaic or the Sinai covenant in Exodus 19 and verse 5, God speaks about keep my covenant and then you will be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. Keep my covenant. As it relates to the Davidic covenant, for the language itself, we go to Psalm 89, beginning in verse 3. We read, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. This certainly points back to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 16, but what I want to emphasize is God makes a covenant with David, which certainly has messianic implications, but it is God making a covenant. Then as it relates to the new covenant, take for example that which is stated in Jeremiah 31 and verse 31 in the very context of the diaspora, the constant context of the covenant curse consequences that are visited upon Israel when everything looks like dry bones and there is no hope. We get this language in Jeremiah 31 and verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And don't you know, brothers and sisters, that this new covenant that Jeremiah speaks of is precisely that which Jesus ratified at Calvary. Jesus says in Luke 22 and verse 20, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And even the proto-evangelium should be seen as a covenant commitment. When God said in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. As George Whitfield once said concerning this statement in Genesis 3.15, that this is none other than what we can call the eternal covenant emerging into the language of the Proto-Evangelium. God the Father and God the Son had entered into a covenant concerning the salvation of the elect from all eternity. We have language speaking of an eternal covenant many places in the Bible. I'll give you one for now. In Genesis 9 and verse 16, we read, that I may remember, God is speaking, the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. I want to relay something to you about the concept of the everlasting covenant. Because while we're not dealing extensively with the scriptural theme of covenant, nonetheless, 
having given you many instantiations of various covenants from the Noahic to the Abrahamic to the Mosaic to the New Covenant to the Davidic and so on, I want you to understand that this is but the out manifestation, the outworking of the everlasting covenant. So let me say something about the everlasting covenant in these words. Before the world was, when God dwelt alone in the bliss of his own ineffable glory, the three persons of the blessed Trinity held a council of peace and established an everlasting covenant of grace by which the everlasting salvation of God's elect and the glory of God in their salvation were guaranteed. God the Father voluntarily agreed to save a people whom He had chosen in His everlasting love. God the Son willingly agreed to be surety for those people whom he and his Father loved. God the Holy Spirit joyfully agreed to come in the fullness of time to each of those people who were chosen of the Father and for whom the Son had become surety or the Savior. He volunteered to regenerate them, call them, give them faith in Christ and preserve them onto the day of resurrection and everlasting glory. And so what I want you to understand, though I'm not casting this in highly technical language, is that every new covenant that was established was but the mechanisms by which the everlasting covenant was to finally be successful. So there's an everlasting covenant which then translates into an in agreement with Adam and Eve in the garden. They break that agreement. And so God establishes the proto-evangelium, which is a new covenant relationship designed to keep alive the everlasting covenant. Ultimately, God establishes the Noahic covenant so that he can preserve a context within which the elect can be saved. And within that context, he grants common grace to the world so that the elect can live and move and have their being. But that won't bring them to salvation, will it? It'll simply preserve life so that they could be saved. And so now God comes to the Abrahamic covenant and he establishes a covenant with Abraham so as to ensure that the everlasting covenant of bringing the elect into the security of heaven will transpire. But that Abrahamic covenant doesn't have every feature necessary in order to train the hearts of men to open up and receive of the sheer grace of God, the simplicity of His grace. And so the Mosaic covenant is established so as to speak to that need of men so that they will see the exceeding sinfulness of sin so that they will embrace what ultimately will be the new covenant with all of their hearts. But in the midst of this unfolding, God has an, an intention that ultimately this covenant relationship will be experienced within his kingdom at the 
head of which will be the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So toward that being completed and ratified, he establishes the Davidic covenant. And then ultimately, because the Mosaic covenant, as he knew, would be a ministration of death and not of life, for it was to lead men to Christ, we know that there is a new covenant that is necessary, not because of God's failure. The old covenant is holy, just, and good. It is spiritual, but we are flesh and we cannot arrive at salvation through the work of the flesh. It must come through the gracious gift of God. And so then we have a new covenant. Why? Because the eternal covenant is going to absolutely be successful because God remembers his covenant and will do whatever he has to do to make sure that it is successful. And so we see how this everlasting covenant idea overarches all of the instantiations of other covenants. In the very passage in Isaiah, where in the first verse we read, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come to the waters of salvation. In the third verse we read, Incline your ear and come unto me. Hear and your soul shall live, and I will make an everlasting covenant with you. Even the sure mercies of David. Dear brothers and sisters, I am not undermining the beauty of the various covenantal relationships, whether it's the Noahic or the Abrahamic or the Mosaic or the Davidic, but I am suggesting to your souls that each of these are covenantal mechanisms by which the everlasting covenant is ensured to be successful. And so the new covenant, as it were, is brought forward because the success of the eternal covenant necessitates a new covenant because God remembers his covenant. He does whatever he has to do to manifest his faithfulness and the bond of commitment that he has with the elect. He remembers his covenant. And so in closing, for application, I want to give you three benefits that flow to us from God's faithfulness to remember His covenant. First of all, exodus. Exodus. We could call it salvation. We could call it rescue. We could call it deliverance. We could call it help from heaven. Any one of these terms are appropriate. Dear brothers and sisters, the Scriptures tell us in Ephesians chapter 1, that we were chosen before the foundation of the world. There is an eternal covenant that is within the triune God toward the objects of His eternal love, the elect. And we were chosen within the context of this covenant before the cosmos was even created. And I'm wanting you to know that though we find ourselves in troubled spots and in bondages and slaveries, self-inflicted and otherwise, that God, in keeping His covenant, will bring as many exoduses to our lives as is necessary to bring us to the safe shores of heavenly, eternal fellowship with Him. I want you to listen to the language of Exodus chapter 12 so you will see that this is precisely the way the Bible presents it. This is some 
430 years after God made a covenant with Abraham. Is that right? He made a covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15 and says, said that I have an arrangement with you. I'm going to select you out of the Noahic period, as it were, after the flood, after I make an agreement with humanity at large, and I establish that humanity will go on. No matter what, they will go on. And I will bring forward my redemptive plan without wiping everybody out. And in order to... Be true to that. He remembered his covenant and he called one man by his grace out of humanity, namely an an idolater by the name of Abram. And he made him a promise in Genesis chapter 15. He made a covenant with him. And he said, your seed is going to be special. I'm going to bring you into a land. I'm going to be your God. And you're going to be my people. 430 years, the descendants of Abraham find themselves in bondage in Egypt, experiencing suffering and untold negative circumstances. And they could think that God has forgotten them. Or they could just simply forget God themselves and not even think in terms of a God who is interested in their well-being. But we read in Exodus chapter 2, Verse 23, and it came to pass in the process of time. Listen to that language, my dear brothers and sisters, because these are spiritual principles as they relate to you. You might be in a process of time, but remember his covenant and remember that he remembers his covenant. And it came to pass in the process of time that the king of Egypt died. The one who was favorable toward God's people died. Everything is turning negative. Everything looks like it's going badly and getting worse. And the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried as if a people who had no God. And their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. Evidently, God wanted them to remember that he's a covenant-keeping God. There's a lesson in this somewhere. In verse 24, and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is God speaking to you ad extra. He's wanting you to sense who he is so you can follow his example. He is perfect in his own ways. But as he relates to you, he is saying, I remember my covenants. What about you? I will not let you go. I will be there. When there's some deep conflict that occurs between me and the people that I love, I will not drop you. I will remember my covenant. I will do whatever it takes to get you out and home safely. So what he says, we read in verse 25, and God looked upon the children of Israel and God had respect unto them. Does that mean God was in favor of their current spiritual status? No, it's saying he remembered them. That's what he's saying. And God remembered them. He had respect. His covenant relationship with his people means what it must be to his heart. And so when Moses goes to Pharaoh and begins to demand that Pharaoh let God's people go, and he's rebuffed by Pharaoh, we read in Exodus 6, Then the Lord said unto Moses, Now shalt thou see what I will do. Isn't that beautiful language? Does that encourage your spirits and encourages mine? I know that my covenant-keeping God will bring me to the place where there will be, now shall you see what I will do, because I'm a covenant-keeping God. 
Now you will see what I will do to the Satans, to the enemies, to the opposers and the adversaries, to the Pharaohs. For with a strong hand, I will so complicate his situation. I will so befuddle his powers and his might that he will want you to go. With a strong hand, he will drive you out of his land. And God said unto Moses, now watch this very carefully. He said unto him, I am Yahweh. I appeared unto Abraham and unto Isaac and unto Jacob by my covenant ad intra name, El Shaddai. I revealed myself to Abram as who I am in my own nature. I am the all-sufficient one. I am the overpowerer. I am the absolute sovereign. But what you are now going to realize, which was always implied in that revelation because of my perfections, but what he's saying to Moses and what he's trying to teach us He goes on to say, but my name, but by my name, Yahweh, which means I am, which means I am here. And now I'm going to act. I was not known to them. That is to say, I established a covenant with them, but I didn't enact it. I didn't cause it to take on its power and deliver results. He says in verse Four, step one has already occurred. I did it in the person of El Shaddai. Verse four, and I also established my covenant. That's every promise that God has made to you, brothers and sisters. All the promises are already yes and amen in God. He's already established his promise. But you might wonder, where is my God On occasions in your experience and you're learning from this lesson that you need to remember his covenant and remember that he remembers his covenant. He goes on to say, and I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage, wherein they were strangers. I did that 430 some years ago. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And listen to this. And I have remembered my covenant. Do you know what that means? Do you know what he's saying? I'm here to act. I'm here to act. I'm Yahweh. I am here. And that's the nature of how God relates to us. He comes to us with promises. And even through Jesus Christ, in a sovereign act of providence, he establishes a new covenant as El Shaddai and overcomes all opposition and brings forward his redemptive plan. And he establishes a covenant in its language. But then, dear brothers and sisters, when his people find themselves in perplexity and they begin to cry out to God and they begin to groan in their difficulties and they remember themselves, the covenant is what they're encouraged to do. What I'm trying to say is that he will show up as Yahweh. He will show up as I am here. Every exodus, every redemptive act is preceded by a promise. Maybe you are looking for an exodus from some troubling situation in your life, something in your home, something in your soul, something in your mind, something in your church. You want an exodus. You want a deliverance. You want a healing. And you're, you're wondering where is the God that made these promises? 
What I'm saying to you is that God remembers his covenant. And when he does, he comes as Yahweh. I am here to bring to pass what I have promised. We know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestinated, them he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, he also glorified. What shall we say to these things? We shall say that God remembers his covenant, that I have reason to believe that he will perfect that which concerns me. I have reason to believe if I'm one of his elect, if this assembly is established by the Lord Jesus Christ, that God remembers his covenant and that he will bring about an exodus because that's what this is all about. Secondly, a second benefit from God remembering his covenant is discipline, but not destruction. Now we learn this out of Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus 26 functions something like a Levitical version of Deuteronomy 28. In the interest of time, I'm not going to dig into this chapter as thoroughly as I might otherwise do, but allow me to relay the general outlay of this chapter. In verses 1 and 2, we have the basic covenantal terms. You are to make no image. You are to keep God's Sabbaths. You are to reverence his sanctuary. In verses 3 through 13, we have covenantal blessings that are promised if we keep the covenantal terms, if we are, are obedient. The blessing of rain, land, fruit, victory. For example, in the ninth verse of Leviticus 26, the wording is this, For I will have respect unto you, which is to say I will remember you and make you fruitful, and multiply you, and I will establish my covenant with you. You see, this is all in the language of covenant relationship. In verses 14 through 39, we have covenantal curses that are a part of the arrangement. Should disobedience enter in? Should man be disobedient? For example, in verse 14, we read, But if you will not hearken unto me, and will not do all these commandments, and if you shall despise my statutes, or if your soul shall abhor my judgments, so that you will not do all of my commandments, but that you break my covenant, I also will do this unto you. And then I'll bypass the list of things that he says, but you should read them of all of the negative experiences that God's people will go through if we don't keep his word, if we aren't faithful in our relationship with God, if we break covenant with God, we will experience all these adverse things in life. In verse 18 of Leviticus 26, we read, And if you will not yet for all this hearken unto me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. In verse 23, he says, If you will not be reformed by me, then I'll punish you seven times more. And he says, I will avenge the quarrel of the covenant in verse 25. In verse 31, he says, If you continue to sin, I will begin to make your sanctuaries desolate. 
I will begin to deplete your churches. I will begin to desecrate the sanctity of your religious experiences. My presence will be withdrawn and in various ways your sanctuaries will be attacked. In verse 33, he says, if you won't listen to me, then I'll scatter you among the nations. I'll allow a foreign power to come in. And not only will your churches have less of the presence of God, I will spread you throughout other geographic locations. In verse 39, he says, you will pine away in your own iniquity wherever I send you. You're hearing all of this language that amounts to awful experiences. And dear brothers and sisters, I want to say to you that you and I are subject to some measure of this as it relates to our own disobedience, dear brothers and sisters, churches of the Lord Jesus Christ, at least confessionally, I'm saying to you that if we don't walk in covenantal obedience with Almighty God, then you can be sure of the experience of negative aspects of your life in which your life does not go well, in which oppression enters into your experience bodily, financially, maritally, familiarly, in your churches, at, at every point, if you read the language, because of the quarrel of the covenant. But I want to draw your attention to something remarkable. I want to draw your attention that all of this language, which does involve us breaking covenant commitments with God. Yet Leviticus 26 finishes off with language that points out the fact that nonetheless, God is not going to destroy you. Why? Because he, unlike you, remembers that he is in a covenant relationship with you and destroying you is not a part of the arrangement. And so, for example, we read in Leviticus 26, beginning in verse 40. If they shall confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, and I suggest to you that that if will never occur except under the disciplinary hand of a faithful covenant-keeping God, that His disciplinary hand is often over our lives, not to destroy us, but to draw us back to covenant faithfulness within which we will realize that He remembers His covenant and always has far better than you, like exponentially, like, like the point of the message is He's perfect in His remembrance. And He says... If you confess your iniquity, the iniquity of your fathers with their trespasses, which they have trespassed against me and that also they have walked contrary to me and that I also have walked contrary to them. Do you know you can experience God walking contrary to you? Does that mean that's the end of your relationship with him? Not if you're in covenant with him, it doesn't. No, as a matter of fact, you're experiencing God's covenant faithfulness. He doesn't discipline everybody. He disciplines his children that are in a covenant relationship and he will walk contrary with you. Sure, it's a serious matter. It's not something you want to fool around with, but listen to the rest of the language. And I have brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised hearts be humbled. Are you prepared to humble your uncircumcised heart? Are you prepared to accept of the punishment of your iniquity? Then verse 34. 
42 says, Then will I remember my covenant. And watch how he speaks of it. He says, in effect, I will start to unwind your problems. He doesn't say, I will remember my covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I will remember my covenant with Jacob and with Isaac and with Abraham. I will remember and I will remember the land. Verse 44, and yet for all that, when they be in the land of their enemies, I will not Cast them away, neither will I abhor them to destroy them utterly and to break my covenant with them. For I am the Lord their God, but I will for their sakes remember the covenant and unwind your messy life. If ever you humble yourself, confess your sins. Perhaps in the ordinance of the bread and cup, when you remember that you're in a covenant relationship with God that entails covenant faithfulness, then brothers and sisters, you can be encouraged that God is here to remember His covenant. And what He ultimately is going to do is He's going to bring about another exodus. Here again, I haven't the time to get into this at length, but when God remembers His covenant, it always issues into a fresh exodus where He brings you out of your problems. He brings you out of your bondage. He brings you and your children out of the oppression of the enemy when He remembers His covenant. And what I'm saying is, God remembers His covenant perfectly. That's precisely what you've just read in Leviticus 26. The reason why all of this has gone the way it has, the reason why this discipline has not brought about destruction is because though we don't remember His covenant sometimes, He remembers His covenant. That's how perfect and faithful He is. So Jeremiah says, Behold, the days are coming, declares Yahweh, when it will no longer be said, as Yahweh lives who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. That should be all that God would have to say. I'm the Lord that brought Abraham's descendants out of Egypt, but they broke covenant with God. And the final judgment was to disperse them. I did not bring that to your attention out of Leviticus 26, but if you follow the listing of what the consequences of sin will be, the final consequence of covenant disobedience is he will scatter you out from your homes and from your dwellings and he will put you into the hands of the enemies that's the final straw he will do but even then he is saying in the end of Leviticus that when these circumstances ultimately humble you when you admit your sin when you cry out to God when you groan for deliverance when you look back to a covenant faithful God and let that reflect on your own covenant insubordination and you seek to be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect and you come to a new commitment to be covenantally faithful with God and you partake of the communion of the bread and cup and you restate in your heart heart before God. I will keep your covenant faithfully in all of its particulars. Then he says, I'm going to bring a new exodus to your life. You'll no longer say, this is the day when I was saved, but this is the day when I was brought out of my sinful Christian messy lifestyle because God remembered his covenant and he came in and brought a new exodus to me and brought me in a fresh way into the promised land of his word and his dynamic and his reality. 
as Yahweh lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries wherein they had been driven. I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they will know that my name is I am here, Yahweh. I want you to know that though we shouldn't boast about it, I want you to know that God will bring as many exoduses as is needed to His people so as to bring them safely into eternal fellowship with Him. Listen to the language of Ezekiel 16 that reconfirms this. Verse 58, as you know, Ezekiel 16 is this long, dramatic story of God's love given to His people and the way in which that love has been so unappreciated and so abused. But here again, listen to the language of how it all ends in Ezekiel 16. Verse 58, Thou hast borne thy lewdness and thine abomination, saith the Lord. Amen. There come times in our life when God's word to us is, You are bearing the consequences of your sin. For thus saith the Lord God, I will even deal with thee as thou hast done, which hast despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Nevertheless, those beautiful words, that beautiful opening, statement in verse 60. Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with thee in the days of thy youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant. Then thou shalt remember thy ways and be ashamed when thou shalt receive thy sister or thy sisters, thine elder Samaria, and thy younger Judah. And I will give them unto thee for daughters, but not by your covenant. I will establish my covenant with thee, and thou shalt know that I am the Lord, that thou mayest remember and be confounded and never open your mouth again because of your shame. Oh, there's so much that's packed into this, dear brothers and sisters, of God finally showing to our hearts when He rescues us, when we reach a state of Egyptian bondage, as it were, in various circumstances, however complicated or whatever scale that might be. But what I'm trying to state is when God finally rescues us from this and shows us how faithful He is to remember His covenant, then as He says here, you will close your mouth. You will never accuse Him of being unfaithful or unthoughtful. You remember, all of that is on me. All the shame is on me. The one who broke this relationship is me. It wasn't Him. There was never any unfaithfulness from His side. There was never any reason for a lack of blessing, for a lack of fruitfulness, for a lack of anything. There was never a reason for it. It was my breaking of the covenant. But thanks be to God, He has remembered His covenant. He has humbled my heart. And as He says here, you will know that I am the Lord. Psalm 106 says, verse 43, many times did He deliver them, but they provoked Him with their counsel and were brought low for their iniquity. Nevertheless, He regarded their affliction when He heard their cry, and He remembered for them His covenant and repented according to the multitude of His mercies. In other words, He relented from what discipline He was bringing because of His mercy, and He made them also to be pitied of all those that carried them captive. How many times does an exodus come to our lives 
some rescue out of some perplexing situation, some dark time, some cloud that seems to be absent any rainbow. How many times does that happen in our lives? Psalm 106 says many times. Many times God comes and delivers us. And every single time it happens, it's a manifestation of Him remembering His covenant. Thirdly, and finally, a benefit of God remembering His covenant as the scriptures teach us, is not only the many exoduses that happen in our lives, the many deliverances that come even when we don't deserve it because God remembers His covenant. Not only is it also manifested in the experience of discipline as opposed to destruction, because as we've read, God remembers His covenant. He might be in a quarrel with us, but He's not going to break His covenant with His elect. Finally, A benefit of God remembering His covenant is redemptive progress, advancement. Owen Robertson says the following, to set aside a people to himself, God established His covenant with Abraham. Subsequently, Abraham's descendants lived also under the Mosaic and Davidic covenants. At those points in history in which God initiated the new covenantal relationships under Moses and David, God was intending to bring to a further stage of development the same redemption that had been promised earlier. Instead of wiping clean the slate and beginning anew, each successive covenant with Abraham's descendants advanced the original purpose of God to a higher level of realization. We've already spoken about this to some extent. We've already pointed out that the Exodus was an occurrence That is explained as God remembering His covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and therefore bringing the redemptive purpose forward. Psalm 105 says, beginning in verse 4, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face evermore. Remember His marvelous works that He hath done, His wonders and the judgments of His mouth. O you seed of Abraham, His servants, ye children of Jacob, His chosen... He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He hath remembered His covenant forever. The word which He commanded to a thousand generations, which covenant He made with Abraham and His oath unto Isaac, and He confirmed it to Jacob. It's an everlasting covenant, we're told at the end of that verse, that He made with Israel. In other words, what we're saying is that A benefit of God remembering His covenant is that though the generations come and go and though time passes in our own lives because God remembers His covenant, He will bring His people forward. Even if sometimes they're in a static condition, as it were, suffering under the consequences of their own sins for some period of time, if they're truly God's people, and if they turn their hearts back to His covenant, He is there to remember His covenant and start the process up again. 
Listen to how David draws off of this idea in 2 Samuel 23 and verse 5. Such a beautiful statement in a relatively short verse. He says, although my house is not in divine order with God, yet he hath made with me an everlasting covenant ordered in all things and sure. This is all my salvation. This is all my desire, although presently he may not make it to grow. But I know that God is going to remember his covenant and he's going to visit my home and visit his people and he's going to cause this to grow. And I want to give you one final verse along these lines this afternoon as it relates to When God remembers his covenant, a benefit is that he will bring advancement to his people. I encourage you, brothers and sisters, to follow God's example as is being preached to you today and remember his covenant in the tension of the ready but not yet time. Put your attention on his covenant. Plead his covenant back to him. Purpose in your heart to come into covenant faithfulness with him. Humble yourselves and confess your sins. Come to a God who remembers his covenant so that he will bring advancement in his purposes into your lives. I want to read to you what the Spirit of God said through Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist. Zechariah originally was not in faith as it related to what God would do for his people. Evidently, he himself, though in the actions of religious duties, had become despondent in terms of the possibility of God visiting his people. But lo and behold, there was Gabriel right in his very presence speaking and seeking to encourage his heart, but Zechariah's heart would not rise up to it. Zechariah could not see a basis upon which anything positive should occur. So therefore, Zechariah was not remembering God's covenant. But whenever God finished disciplining Zechariah and Zechariah's mouth was open, he spoke by the Spirit of God. And in verse 67 of Luke chapter 1, we read, and John Baptist's father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied saying, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he hath visited and redeemed his people and he hath raised up in horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets which have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies that we should have a new exodus he will keep his covenant faithfulness to David and from the hand of all them that hate us to perform the mercies promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swear to our father Abraham that he would grant to unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, thou, child, shall be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go forth before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of sins. In other words, a message of salvation will be invigorated again and will go forth and touch the hearts of humanity. 
through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit and was in the desert till the day of his showing unto Israel. In other words, the manifestation of all of this wasn't immediate. But the Spirit of the Lord was calling the attention of God's people to the reality, to the hope, to the faith of believing that God always remembers His covenant to a thousand generations. And He is now sending forth the prophet that will prepare the way for His Son who will become a mediator of a better covenant that will present better blood than that of Abel, by which he will ratify the covenant. And in his blood, his people will overcome all the power of the enemy. And so we can hear the beautiful language of Hebrews chapter 13. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do His will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Remember that God remembers His covenant as we partake of the communion of the bread and cup this afternoon, brothers and sisters. Why don't you stand with me, please?